Please join me, if you will, in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I used to boldly proclaim that I had a thorn in my flesh. It was my little sister. And I was between junior high and high school. In fact, I thought it was pretty cool to introduce Beth as my thorn in my flesh. But my claim of having the thorn in the flesh had little to do with Paul's understanding of the phrase and much more to do with the fact that it seemed to annoy my little sister each time I said it, even though I don't think that either of us fully understood what it meant. We find Paul in the middle of the second letter to the Corinthians. Paul had developed a relationship with the Corinthians over time with this church there, and his letters had maintained the ongoing relationship, responding to activities or other correspondence he had received from them, and thoughts that he was having in in response to their worship or other issues that were going on. Sometime after the letter, the first letter to the Corinthians was written, the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians deteriorated. We don't know why exactly, but it makes an important difference when we read this second letter to the Corinthians. Things weren't going so well with Paul in relationship to the Corinthian church. You see, Paul's ministry as an apostle, as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, was based not on having been a disciple of Jesus, somebody who had touched and talked with Jesus, who had been there in person with him, like Matthew or Peter or Mark or John or James or any of the original 12 disciples. So to the Corinthian church, Paul actually suffered in comparison to the original disciples in that he never saw Jesus in the flesh. But Paul depended on a vision, on the call of Christ for his authority. So when we read these first few verses of chapter 12 and we read about this kind of crazy, unexpected vision, it begins to make sense to us because what's happening in the church of Corinth is that other people there are claiming to have had visions, that they are boasting that they have seen visions, that they have authority in Christ, and perhaps their visions paled in comparison to Paul's authority in Christ. So Paul, realizing that he needs to build his credibility with this group, cranks it up a notch in this part of the letter. And the passage in chapter 12 describes a man telling about his magnificent vision. And here's where it gets interesting. Because the story is in third person. So if we were just reading along in this book, in this chapter, this letter, and we're thinking, why on earth is Paul putting this in? But all biblical scholars are quick to point out that this third person to whom Paul refers is actually Paul himself. I don't know exactly why he doesn't say that, but to biblical scholars, they tell me that that's pretty obvious. And so Paul is writing 
in third person about himself to a culture in which heavenly journeys are often ones that confirm divine approval and, authentica and authentication. So if the Corinthians, the people of the church of Corinth, embrace the notion that visions and revelations are important indications of genuine apostolic standing, then what Paul writes in this chapter 12, what he writes to the Corinthians boosts his credibility with them and actually would have been received quite impressively with hopes that surely the strange relationship between Paul and the Corinthians would be softened. But to make sure that this newly claimed authority and credibility of Paul would not make him appear too lofty or too proud, Paul points out that even with this apostolic divine intervention here of this appearing before God in the heavens, even with this type of revelation, even with this divine approval, Paul has a thorn in the flesh, something that makes him weak or distracted or frustrated. Now the question that has always stumped biblical scholars for decades, centuries, and more is what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Every single commentary that I read about this, I almost began to chuckle because the same thing kept coming they would all give a list of what potentially could have been Paul's thorn in the flesh. And almost all of them compo composed of the following items, give or take a few. It could have been epilepsy, hysteria, depression, headaches, eye problems, or maybe leprosy, or maybe one, one commentary said malaria. But then they all would say the exact same thing. Truth be told, we have no clue what it was, nor can we. Paul never tells us what it was. We don't need to know. What the problem is, and that doesn't seem to be the concern with Paul of actually what the thorn in the flesh is, at least not enough that he needs to tell the church at Corinth. Whatever the thorn is, he keeps it simply from over himself through these many revelations that he has, some of which are incredibly grand. So Paul says he takes this thorn in his flesh and he appeals to God three times, three different times, and he says, God, take it away from me. God, take it away from me. God, take it away from me. And it wasn't. What Paul got as an answer to this kind of appeal was not a removal of the, of the thorn as he had requested, but instead, an assurance that the Lord's grace is sufficient and that the Lord's power is perfected in weakness. I don't know. Those words don't always give me a lot of strength when I'm asking God to take something away. We don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, and it doesn't matter Paul didn't have to tell us, but what Paul did tell us was how he dealt with the thorn in the flesh. And that's what does matter. He prayed. He prayed to God fervently to take it away. And when God said no, Paul learned to live with it. Knowing that in his weakness, whatever this weakness was, Paul then became more dependent on God. 
As long as I have known my father, he has worn hearing aids in both ears. And if I need to repeat that, he has always worn hearing aids. That's a joke in our family. Dad has always worn hearing aids ever since he was late in his 30s. And so for as long as I've known him, Dad has always lived with hearing aids, with sometimes the ringing in his ears, us needing to tell him his blinker is still on because he can't hear it, for him being frustrated eating out in restaurants. As long as I've known Dad, he has struggled with hearing. We often have to repeat things, sometimes yell things, even with his hearing aids. One of the favorite memories of us growing up with Dad around the dinner table was when the six of us would be gathered and all of us were engaged actively in conversation, talking about something that had happened, perhaps at church that week, and all of us are expressing comments, and Dad would be sitting there just eating, listening in, and we would end the conversation about that topic. And about three minutes later, Dad would chime in, bringing up the topic that we had just discussed in detail as though we had never, ever even talked about it. And we would all look at Dad and say, Dad, we just got done talking about that. And he would say, oh, well, I just thought we'd bring it up again, clearly realizing that he had never heard it the first time, and yet he was sitting right there. I always am amazed, even to this day, even in asking my dad on Friday if I could use this story as an illustration in the sermon, a dad's sense of humor through his physical ailment, his laughter at how things have often been miscommunicated in our family because of his hearing problem, his laughter at when I called him to tell him that I too have, have earned the genetic predisposition to a hearing ailment that my grandmother and he have, that when I failed my hearing test this past year, I called him on the phone and said, Dad, my doctor thinks I'm going to need to have hearing aids in the next year or two, just like you. And he said, what? <laughs> and I just started laughing. He didn't know what I was laughing at, but when I told him again what I had just told him, he just laughed and laughed, not realizing how funny he was. Dad laughs at his weakness. And even though I am fearful of losing my own hearing like my dad, he has taught me how laughter helps him in his weakness. And it is in that weakness that I see his strength. Boasting in weakness does not mean an occasion for copping out, for doing little, for ignoring others, or doing nothing. Our weakness may allow us to acknowledge accomplishments without getting too carried away and without thinking too highly of ourselves to admit our failure, insults, or difficulties without losing perspective and falling into despair. We all have our own thorns in the flesh. Some of us feel like maybe we have more than others. And like Paul, we could sit here and feel sorry for ourselves or guess what each other's is. But like Paul, I don't think that knowing what each other's is is really all that's important. What's important is that we know what our own thorn is and that we acknowledge that thorn with God. And we pray 
We pray like Paul did fervently for it to be removed. And if it isn't, we live with it through grace. Maybe you haven't been thinking about your thorn in the flesh recently. Maybe you've suppressed it or ignored it or hoped it would at least go away. Or maybe it's there each morning to greet you in whatever fashion, ready to overtake you once again. Your thorn in the flesh may be your desire for more stuff in your life. It may be an inappropriate relationship you're having with another person. It may be an addiction to food or alcohol or prescription drugs or pornography. It may be your codependence on someone else. Maybe hypocrisy. It may be overwhelming financial debt or fear of failure or negative self-talk or your unwillingness to forgive someone in your life. It may be diabetes. It may be a dysfunctional family. It may be headaches, loss of eyesight, cancer, or lack of self-esteem. You don't have to tell us what it is. But you do have to name it to God, and you have to ask for it to be removed, or it will overtake you. And if it is removed, we give thanks to God for that. And if for some reason, in God's wondrous plan, it isn't removed, because removing a thorn is difficult, it is tedious, it takes careful attention, it's not done casually or quickly, but rather with great care and with attention. But if for some reason the thorn is not removed, then we pray for God's strength to be known in our weakness. Could it be that at our most depressed, our most incompetent, our most wounded, our most unlucky, our most vulnerable moments, we are somehow closer to the strength that belongs to us as children of God? Going home or a homecoming is supposed to be a really wonderful occasion. Jesus was going home, finally, to Nazareth after having attracted crowds and crowds of people, interested strangers throughout all of Galilee, he had been healing the sick, raising the dead, calming the storms, appointing disciples, and driving out evil spirits. He had been busy, but the crowds had been growing. And so here he was in his hometown of Nazareth on the Sabbath, and he was surrounded by his disciples, and he began to preach in the synagogue. There was a significant number of people there that day, and they listened they were amazed. But they weren't amazed in the same way that the people in Galilee had been amazed. They weren't amazed in the same way that Jairus was when he knelt down to Jesus and asked Jesus to come heal his dying daughter. They weren't amazed in the same way that the leper was when Jesus cured him and told him, don't go and tell anyone what I had done. Instead, the leper went away in amazement and told everyone, spreading the good news of the healing. No, Jesus' hometown folks weren't amazed in that way. Instead, their amazement was quite different. They asked, where did this man get these ideas? Where did they come from? Where does he get these things? Where does he claim to have this kind of wisdom, this kind of knowledge? 
isn't this the carpenter that we used to know? The one that helped Uncle Daniel get his dining room made and set up? Isn't this Mary's son? I never would have guessed Mary's son, that quiet, meek, mild, obedient Mary would have a son that would be so audacious and bold like this. Is this the Jesus that used to play with our Tommy and Joanna in the town square? Is this the same Jesus? And Mark writes in the gospel that they took offense at him. And amazingly, he could do no miracles there for them, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And then Mark writes that he, Jesus, was amazed at their lack of faith. Timothy Shears says, when one is weak and fully aware of his or her utter reliance on God, that is when he or she is strongest as a person of faith. It is in our weakness that we find our faith. It is in our weakness that we realize our need for others and for God. It is in our weakness that we realize we cannot do this alone, nor should we do this all alone. And so we gather together each Sunday as a body of believers to remind each other of our companionship on this journey of faith. Henry Nowen wrote, A Christian community is therefore a healing community, not because wounds are cured and pains are alleviated, but because wounds and pains become openings or occasions for a new vision. Mutual confession then becomes a mutual deepening of hope, and sharing weakness becomes a reminder to one and all of the coming strength. It's easy to see other people's strength in their weaknesses. I mean, look at Moses' desire to not lead due to his inability to speak well or Queen Esther's fear in approaching the king for her people, or even Jesus on the cross. We can see how their strength came out of their weaknesses, but it's often harder to see our own strength in our weaknesses. Malcolm Young writes, Often the closer I am to real pain and real weakness, the harder it is for me to see evidence of God's strength. I wonder how often we ever see that God's power is perfected in our more ordinary moments of weakness. And yet there are moments of deep weakness for all of us, moments that seem to have no happy endings, only bitterness and despair. In such moments, how do we see evidence of God's strength becoming perfected in such a weakness? Young continues to write, how can we return to Paul's boasting of his weakness without some sort of sense of bitterness. Where is the perfection of God after all? When one begins to talk about religion, it's too easy to forget about the cross. We can be too apt to believe that religion is only for making us feel good rather than an honest search for truth and for God. We forget that even Jesus could do no deed of power in his hometown. Even for him, religion involved more than merely having his own way. We are so accustomed in our culture to expecting everything to turn out right, and if it doesn't, well, then we'll just hunker down, we'll pray harder, and we'll make it right by working harder. 
We, love, we live in such a proud, can-do sort of society that we often think that what matters religiously is only what we can do for others. But there's more to being Christian than doing good works. It's submitting to God's refining first. It's submitting to God's refining that first must also be part of the journey. In a genuine life of faith, what it does to us is as important as what we do. Malcolm Young writes, For Christians in moments of humiliating weakness, we are not so much closer to God as we are further from the ego that obstructs our view of God. During my internship in seminary, the congregation with whom I was working had a very well-respected, educated, talented, 50-some-year-old man diagnosed with liver cancer during my time there. After his diagnosis, he lived only a few months. But during those months, he was transformed. He preached a sermon, something he had never done before, a sermon entitled, The Gift of Cancer. He never wanted cancer, he never hoped for cancer, and he definitely was not happy when he found out he got cancer and never ever would wish it on anyone else. But when he realized what he had, and he knew that he was not going to be able to overcome it on this earth, he sat down and accepted it. And he welcomed these new perspectives and new insights he had as a result of his cancer. His ability to say things to people that he might not have said before. His ability to enjoy nature fully on his bike rides to work, rather than ignoring the beauty and focusing on the day ahead. Malcolm Young concludes, the weakness that interrupts the illusion of our control over our own lives may be the only thing that can help us to see God who created us and loves us. When we accept our thorns, painful as they are, and our energy to hide them, to fight them, to defend ourselves against them, and to eliminate them, it frees us to focus less on ourselves and more on God. God didn't make any of us perfect. We, are all, we all have our thorns, some visible, some invisible, some prominent, some barely noticeable, some physical, some emotional, but they are a part of us, part of how God created us, so that in them and through them, we are not self-reliant on the greatness and on our own ego, but rather in our weakness, we are made strong in Christ's love for us. Now that is amazing. Amen.